Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where Pastor Lauren Regeer opens God's Word each week to provide us with biblically-based teaching that helps you meet life head-on. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, here is Pastor Lauren Regeer. Well, amen. Thank you, ladies. You know, I always think in that song, when we get to that Stanza, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. Our hearts ought to thrill at that lyric. I was thinking today, sometimes as a church, we pass on some difficult news to you about people's health condition, about the raging advances of COVID. And there's this pallor that is often cast over even a, a good church meeting like this about the difficulties of life and we become succumbed a little bit to the difficulties and trials of life, but he is coming back, amen, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. What joy ought to thrill our hearts, not just at the prospect of that in our lifetime, at any moment, but the fact that he still reigns and is reigning even now in the midst of our difficulties. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we are in our study in the morning, called to be saints, and we're looking at the wonderful Instruction of God to the Corinthian church through the pen of the Apostle Paul, who started the church there. It is good to see you here today. Good to have Miriam's son here with us. Always great to have guests in our church. Good to see that Taylor's improved a little bit. And folks are on the mend. Some of you are glad for that. Pray for those that are in the midst of difficulties with illness and other things that God would sustain them. 1 Corinthians Chapter 4, let's begin, shall we, with the word of prayer. Father, we are grateful, so grateful for the fact that you have called us as a church out of the world, not so far away that we can't have an influence upon them. We called us unto yourself, sanctified us, given us that <clears throat> holy title of saints, the called out ones. We know that we're supposed to be different on purpose because you have given us your name, your spirit, and Lord, we thank you for the transformation that went on in our hearts the sanctification that's ongoing, the process of getting us ready for that wedding in glory. We thank you so much for the truths before us this morning. And I do pray that you would strengthen the feeble hands that hang down and those hearts that need just to be encouraged. We pray we lift them up to you. May this time be of great profit to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I really know nothing uh, about much of technical things. I've um, I'm just kind of always been behind a little bit in school when it comes to these things. I am not uh, that great at techie things. I say that as I'm trying to even advance to the next slide. Could you help me? Thank you. We are called to be saints. Behind me, you see some pictures of uh, modern-day Corinth and some of the remains of uh, the structures that came or date all the way back to Paul's day. But in terms of technology today, new things, I know nothing of a word they call cryptocurrency. I guess that's... Uh, a really a Bitcoin that's a digital version of money or currency used as value for trade or commerce in the digital world. It's really over my head. It's new, and I'm not so young anymore. It's very confusing to old guys like me who like to open my wallet just to find out how I'm doing and what kind of money I have. I tell panhandlers who ask me, do you have any money? I actually pull out my wallet and say, look, there's nothing there. Silver and gold, have I none? But there, I guess, is a... Um, a value structure in cyber world <clears throat> that is beyond my ability to grasp. 
these are called, of course, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. I guess millennials who are beggars these days are asking for cryptocurrency. A financial advisor tells me or tells us that uh, there is such a thing as an ether rock, which is only a digital image of a rock. It's not really a rock. It's called an NFT, a non-fungible token, non-fungible token. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Here's the truth. There are only 100 originals of these cyber images of a rock, and they're simply generated by computers. It's an image of a rock. Now, listen to this, dear friends, this morning. Here's what this advisor says, this financial advisor. He says about ether rocks. He says, it has absolutely no purpose, no useful purpose at all outside of allowing the owner to say, I own one. And guess what? These, you want to see one? I knew you did. Um, let's see if this will, there's an ether rock. Isn't that amazing? You can't put that on your finger. It's got no, no purpose at all, except there's only a hundred, I guess, originals of these. And if you own one, guess how much they're worth? They're over $2 million a piece. They're trading on the net for that. The pride of possession. That's what they're good for. Do you own anything that you're really proud of? A possession. There were people in Corinth walking around saying, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Peter. As if that was something to be proud of. In fact, Paul would say, I'm glad I baptized none of you, except that he began to remember then. I think Paul was a little older when he wrote because his memory was a little shaky. I guess Crispus, I did, and the house of Stephanus and Gaius, I, I baptized you all. I'm glad I didn't baptize any because you're attached to people instead of Christ. I was thinking about how much value we put on names and stuff. We have so much stuff, our garages are full, our basements are full, our attics are full, and then we go out and get the containers around, we, we find places to store our extra stuff that doesn't even fit in our house. When we were having a garage sale uh, years ago, we were kids at the time, we had a bunch of, a box full of gloves, baseball mitts, and old baseballs that we were just trying to sell, and they didn't sell at all. I guess people weren't that impressed with our junk, and as kids, we wanted to earn a little money at the garage sale, so one of us boys got the idea that we ought to put a name on some of those baseballs. Not wise, not right, but we did it. We, we scribbled Babe Ruth <laughs> on all those old dirty baseballs and then watched what happened. Man, the next two, three families that came in, eyes got real big. They snatched those up. I mean, we put it on with felt tip mark. I don't know if felt tip was around back in Babe Ruth. Uh, and boy, did they sell quickly. Now, we should have been ashamed of ourselves. There it is. I understand that and our signature of ba- uh, forged signature of Babe Ruth was nothing like that. I am told that if you have a baseball that uh, has his name on it, original, of uh, course, true, not fake, uh, that if it's a single occurrence of his name, it's balls in good shape and it's verified, it could go for as much as $100,000. <laughs> and then if you had this base car- baseball card, by the way, if you do find one, let me know. Uh, that, that card there could be worth in the millions of dollars. 
Yes, up to $6 million. So I want you to go home, look in your attic, (laughs) some of you old guys, see if that's just laying around somewhere. And then when you find it and sell it, please call me and then I'll give you a faith promise card to fill out. Four times in our text today, we hear these words, ye are puffed up. That's a pretty descriptive word for pride, isn't it? You look at the text this morning, uh, we see it uh, listed for us, verse 6 of chapter 4. These things, have, brethren, if I uh, said in a, in, a, in a way of example to myself, to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of us, excuse me, no one of you be puffed up for, uh, for reason of your commitment or your attachment to, uh, to us. Chapter 4, verse 18. Now some of you are puffed up, thinking I will not come back. Chapter four nineteen. Some of you have puffed up your speech, but you're powerless in deeds. And then chapter 5, verse 2. After a very serious matter of sin in the church, flagrant sin, open sin, there was not a spirit of brokenness. And Paul said, you are puffed up. Four times he uses this, and he addresses this problem in the Corinthian church in chapter 4 in three different manners. First, he will describe preachers who are humble and praiseworthy, verses 1 through 5. And then he will decry those with sarcasm. By the way, the people who are proud, we find that in verses 6 through 13. And then he will defend his own paternal, fatherly pattern of love in the end of the chapter. Let's begin reading, shall we? In verse 1, let a man so account of us. He's speaking now of those who founded the church at Corinth himself and others as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful, but with me it is a small thing that I should be judged of you or of a man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet Am I not hereby justified? But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things, the secret things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. Then shall every man have praise of God. So Paul is beginning to take a a kind of a a look at the proud hearts of uh, these folks. There's still really a personality cult there. Uh, and he, first of all, describes the preachers that are praiseworthy. And there is this attitude of divisiveness in the church at Corinth still lingering. Paul's addressed this more than once, and we'll continue to address it. And uh, this, this disunity over, really, what they had, had attached themselves to, almost celebrity status, what they believed, conferred upon the preachers. Now, I want to remind you, by way of review, in chapter uh, three, Paul reminded them, assume your identity. As believers, you have the life and mind of Christ. So adorn yourself with the mind of Christ, which is very humble. That mind lowered itself from heaven's glories, came to earth, and gave itself on a cross for you. So adorn yourself with the mind of Christ. Secondly, act your age. Grow. Grow up in grace. And thirdly, anticipate the appearing. The judge will come. The Bema seat, all of you will be uh, called into account for how you have how you, how you spent your ministry days in the church at Corinth. 
And your motives will be judged. Your attitudes, your works will be judged. One day, all of your life, no matter how short or long, as a Christian, will come up before the true judge who will do right. So behave yourself in terms of your right spirit one toward another. Then he ends, of course, chapter uh, 3, excuse me, ends chapter 2 with this shot across the bow. Let no man glory in man. Verse 21, that's of chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 21. Let no man glory in man, for all things are yours. And we are not supposed to glory in a name, even a pastor's name. Paul was going to make great, take great pains to say, we're just the conduit. The thing that's important, the person that's important in church is Jesus Christ. Amen? It's not about us. And he will take chapter 4 and make a big point of that. It's not Pastor Paul. It's not Pastor Peter. Pastor Paulus. And I think in terms of our own culture and day, we got to quit saying I've got a Bible that's signed by, of all people, David Jeremiah. (laughs) I've been baptized by John the Baptist, discipled by Moses, married by Billy Graham, eulogized by Jack Hiles. And I, yeah, and behind the name of David, I've got D.L. Moody in my Bible. I am somebody special. And the Lord is going to tell us, no, it's Christ who set you free, gave you life, so we preach Christ. We come to the blessed truths of chapter 4, which should really further settle the fractured, divisive church there. And we've already read verses 1 through 6. And just some reminders, Paul describes, uh, really he's going to take some time to describe a preacher who's truly praiseworthy. What does a good preacher, a humble preacher look like? So let us account our, our, give an account of ourselves as the ministers of Christ and the stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found Faithful. Yes, faithful in his character, faithful in his home, faithful in his life. But Paul here is speaking about faithful with the truth. What is the truth? Paul said this if you want to know what a good, humble pastor is, in contrast to your bickering, uh, conniving, critical, proud ways, understand that we are all about the truth. The truth is God's view, God's opinion about everything. (laughs) That's simply it. And Paul said, we are not here to build an edifice or a name for ourselves. We are here to disclose to you the truth about who God is, how you get saved, and how you walk in the Lord. That's our calling. That's our job, period. We are to get out of the way and make much of Jesus. This was a great message then where there was such a worship of names. We are ministers. Do you know what that word minister means? It simply is this. In the Greek, it means a galley slave or an under rower. This was not a glamorous job. He called himself, I am simply someone who is hidden away, sorely abused and mistreated for the, for the, the benefit of the direction of the ship. I am just a, a galley slave. That's who I am. He had earlier called himself in chapter 3 and verse 5, a minister, a different Greek word that is a waiter of tables, a busboy. Now he calls himself a galley slave in a boat. Paul, unlike so many of the people around him of note, 
wasn't in it to make his name big. Jude, verse 16 says, some have men's persons in admiration. That's a great phrase. There are some that are so attracted to people, and he saw himself rather as an under-shepherd, an under-rower, moving only at the directions of the Lord of the church. Paul did not get into the ministry by his own volition. In fact, God literally knocked Paul off his horse. He was on the way to persecute Christians on the road to Damascus, and God literally arrested his attention, turned him around. Paul wasn't on his way to build a name for himself in terms of Christian ministry. God had to draft him. So he didn't come to Corinth, Corinth, uh, again, trying to make a name. He said, "I'm, I'm a servant. I'm a minister under God's control and command. Yes, preaching is an honorable office, a desirable office, but Paul said, I wasn't in it to make a name for myself. I want you to know that. He is a steward that is, he's been entrusted with what? The mysteries of God. Let me explain that, just the secret things of God. This doesn't mean a mystery in terms of it's a puzzle that you have to have a special key to unlock a special door to go down a bunch of steps to find. No, he's simply saying we are the ministers, the stewards. God has entrusted us with the gospel Formerly hidden in the Old Testament, only alluded to in terms of illustration and sign in the Old Testament. Now it's come to light and God has given us as the, as the apostles the, the, the wonderful ability, the joy of taking the gospel formerly shadowed, formerly hidden in a sense. Now come to life at the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection. I know Jesus. He is the Messiah. And I've come to you. In Corinth, with that message and that message alone, I purpose not to know anything among you except Christ and Him crucified. I'm not here to pat myself on the back. It's a wonderful truth. It's required in stewards that a man be found faithful with the truth. That's it. In our preacher boy classes, we need to remind ourselves of that. That's what our job is. It's amazing today, isn't it, that we have become, even especially in the church in America, uh, a little bit untrustworthy, unfaithful of such a message. Uh, We are trying to adorn ourselves. We're trying to build edifices that look a lot like malls. We're trying to spice up, spruce up, hype it up, redefine our mission, keep up with Broadway. Uh, Turn on Christian television. It seems like we've all gone to Hollywood to figure out how we can glamorize the gospel because somehow it's not good enough. So we have to spice it up, hype it up, turn up the volume, bring in the comedians. And somehow we as preachers have decided along the way that that book isn't enough. God have mercy on us. This is what we are to declare. This message alone can change a life. Christ alone, a preacher's trust is the truth about God, the author of our salvation. So we have a stewardship, a responsible, a requirement for the gospel. The word is to be entrusted with something very precious. Did you know that preaching has never been that popular, especially when you start preaching about sin? And preachers who preach about sin faithfully are not in the top ten celebrity list in Hollywood. They're just not. 
We're to be faithful to our calling to preach Christ. The secret things are simply referred to the truth, the full, the plenary, the full orb of the truth that's been given to us in Scripture. The reason we are to go into all the world, the reason we have a missions conference is that we have the only, amen, the only light there is, the only salt that can heal a wound spiritually is found the precious pages of this book. And Paul said, I am committed to this. How committed are you? Did you know that God has given you the same trust? It's not to a special group of apostles. If you know the gospel and you have a Bible, you're called as a Christian to be faithful with the word. The one who cuts your hair, the one who puts the groceries in that bag at Kroger's, the one you know across the fence, your neighbor, you know that God has entrusted to you this wonderful truth and it's required of you to be faithful with that. When you get to heaven one day, preacher, he's not going to ask you about how pretty your church was in terms of building and how many lights you had behind you or just what you did to keep up with Hollywood. He's going to ask you, what did you do with the truth? How well did you represent me? What did you say about Christ? Oh, how far we've strayed. And so had the Corinthian church. Paul said this. It's a very small thing, verse 3, that I'm judged of you or of a man's judgment. He says, I don't trust your judgment, nor nor am I moved or worried about what you say about me in terms of praise or criticism. Isn't this great? In, in a sense, preachers today have removed the, uh, changed the audience from Christ and God to people. We care what people think about us. We're fine-tuning our product, so to speak, in order that we might please people outside the church. And God says, stop it. I'm the one. I'm the Lord of the church. The message is mine. Be faithful with that. So... Paul says, it doesn't move me to pride or, crit- or, or jealousy, not even my own, verse 4, appraisal of myself. Your assessment of me nor my own doesn't justify or condemn me. We have an appointment with God someday. When the time comes, verse 5, the Lord will bring to light the hidden things, the motives of your heart, your ministry motives, those will, those will be seen. Then every man shall have praise of God. Let me just encourage you with this. You say, I'm not a preacher. I don't feel called to that. But do you know that every good thing you do with proper motive before the Lord will be praised one day? Did you know that? If only a cup of water is given in his name, God will remember it. And Paul reminds us, there's a day coming when the judge, the righteous judge, will reward every good deed done with a proper heart and motive. Our hidden thoughts will be revealed, and the preacher who's humble, faithful, with the trust that's been given to him, will be rewarded, verse 5. Verse 6 is kind of hard, at least in the old-timey English, to really understand. These things, brethren, I have in, in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up with pride. For one against another. What does that really mean? He's simply saying <clears throat> the pictures that we've used of the first three chapters, that's what I love about through the word preaching, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is this. He said we've, learned, we've used a picture of a farmer already in the first three chapters, of a builder, of a table waiter, 
now of of a galley slave. And I've applied these, verse 6, these things have I in a figure transferred. In other words, we've applied these pictures, these illustrations to ourselves as apostles that you might learn in us. (laughs) Look at us. The true faithful servants of God. We're not celebrities. We're servants. That you would not be puffed up. We're channels only. We've attached these things to us. We've used them as illustrations that you would see the person, the pastor, ought to be humble and gracious and get out of the way of the message that saves. So stop it, he says, with the cult of personality comparison. And then secondly, he says this, Paul decides, or excuse me, decries the people in the church. Now he, again, is removed from the immediate context. He's in Ephesus writing this letter because he's heard that there's this attitude, this, well, let's call it what it is, these puffed up toads hopping around the church. And he says, let's stop that. And so he decries the people who are proud or puffed up. And we read verse 7, for who maketh thee? There's some questions asked that are very important. Who makes you to differ from another? What hast thou received? Thou didst not receive. Great interrogatives here to keep the audience of the letter kind of connected. Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Your gifts and your possessions are not your own. He has almost, a, in the next few verses, an apostolic tongue lashing, and he uses some sarcasm to do it, to get their attention. He says in verse 7, you are not self-made people. Pride always makes, um, makes the people around the person who's proud say, it's like a virus. You don't know you have it, <laughs> but everybody else notices that you, pride is like that. He scolds them for their ingratitude. His tone is father. Who makes you different? Who makes you special? Who gave the grace gospel to you? Was it you? They were complaining, criticizing, carping about things, comparing themselves. They were ungrateful, discontent. And so he asked the arrogant three questions. Corinthians, who made you special? Verse 7, what do you have that's not been first given to you? And then thirdly, why are you proud of these things if you did not on your own bring them to yourself? Everything is a gift of God, every good gift. Each of these questions has an obvious answer. Who made you uniquely privileged? You think about it, Bible Baptist Church. Who's given us all of this godly heritage? From whence cometh all these great things? We can make quite a list if we try. The answer there, of course, is God. What do you have that's not been first given to you? The answer there ought to be nothing. Then why do you boast in it? Answer, self-incriminating, because I'm proud. That's why. Puffed up people are selfish and blind to it. A father saw his little boy throwing a baseball up in the air and then trying to swing his bat to try to hit it. You've seen this. Maybe you've done this. The little boy was just a youngster and he throws it up, misses it, throws it up again, misses it a second time and says, strike two, throws it up the third time and misses it badly and says, strike three. And his daddy 
looks at him, so what does this teach you, son? He says that I'm a pretty good pitcher. <laughs> no, it doesn't. All this goodness from the Lord, all his kindness to us, should not make us proud of face or place or station. It should humble us and say, thank you, Lord. Some of us, perhaps, ought to get on a plane if we could, and then I'd get on a boat for a couple weeks, and then a canoe, and then hike through the forest and the woods, and poke our head into a tribe somewhere where they've never tasted of the grace of the gospel. Come back here and sit in this air-conditioned place and say, thank you, Lord, for what you have done. We can be so self-content because we think we've earned all this somehow. No, we ought to understand we're just sinners saved by grace. Amen. And so we are to understand that it is indeed the goodness of God. And here he says, it's a, a really a chilling picture, verse, uh, verse 8, he uses sarcasm. You're full, aren't you? You are full of yourselves. You're rich. You're self-supplied, you think. And you're reigning as kings. And this, of course, is well before the millennial age when that will happen. And you're reigning as kings without us. And he said, I would to God, sarcasm, that you did reign, and that we also might reign with you. We like to come to court with you. We like to enjoy the palace that you speak of. For I think, he says, honestly, that God hath set forth the apostles as last. This is referring to the victory parades where the prisoners of war would come at the last part. He's talking about the the, the, the patriarchs, the, the, the prophets, the priests, and then came... Uh, the disciples and apostles, we're the last in the parade. But look at us. Look at us. You're acting as kings, as though this is your moment to be proud of, of, of who you are and what you've accomplished. But look at us, the apostles, we're at the last in the parade. The Romans would parade the spoils of war, and here at the last would come those Prisoners of war that they had spared just for public execution. And Paul says, that's us. While you're celebrating in your church service, we're getting ready to die for the cause of Christ. So sober up. Often I look at a picture like this, prisoners of war, World War II, Jews. What must be going through their mind as they head to the gas chamber? That's, Paul in a sense is not fatalistic here. He's saying we know that our calling is to preach the gospel and then to be shamed. And he goes on with the list here. We're made a spectacle to the world, to angels, to men. We're fools, considered fools for Christ's sake, verse 10. You're wise, we're weak. You're strong somehow. You see yourself that way. You're honorable and we're despised. What's the irony here? There's a disparity. Even in this present hour, we're hunger, we thirst, we're naked, we're buffeted, persecuted, have no sure dwelling place, and we labor working with our own hands. 
at times just to survive. We're reviled. We bless being persecuted. We suffer for it. We're defamed. We entreat. We're made as the filth, the scum of the earth. That's where that phrase comes. The offscouring, offscouring of all things unto this day. That's who we are as your apostles, your ministers. So Corinth and churches here today, the Word of God has a, has a transcending applicational value. This is not just a tongue lashing for the Corinthians. It is to us who are settled, content, celebrating when God is trying to prepare us for what could be the most troubling, most difficult time for the church yet in America. They abuse the patriarchs, they abuse the priests, they abuse the prophets, the disciples and apostles. So marvel not that the world will hate you. In fact, no one, let me say this carefully, no one gets to heaven without a few scars for the faith. Must I be taken through the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fight to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? It will be the experience of every believer to be persecuted to some extent on his way to glory in this world Ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There's a holy hush after verse 13. Because they're a little bit ashamed, I would think, if they're reading this epistle, this letter from Paul, of their attitude, of pride, of division, of celebrity worship and status. And they look at Paul, who just to see him come up, as I mentioned before, To preach in front of their congregations is a great convictional illustration, scarred up from life as a minister. And then he gets to what we'll end with this morning. Uh, He says this, I simply want you to know that I still love you. A A good parent doesn't let a bad attitude slipped by unnoticed. And he doesn't. He doesn't just say, I, I hope you grow out of that. He takes pains to say, stop it. You can't have this spirit of pride, of possession, and of people, and still be a servant of God in this day and age. Understand that. And he says in verse 14, I don't write these things to shame you. Correct, yes, but not to shame you. You are my beloved. The word there, beloved, it comes from agape. That's the highest form of love, self-sacrificing, self-effacing, sacrificial love. I, I say this because you are my beloved children, my sons in the faith. I say it simply to warn you, to get in line, to change your attitude and serve God from a humble spirit understanding that everything is a gift from God. You don't own anything, not even this joy of knowing Christ and the fellowship and the companionship of church. It's all because of God. And as, a, as the one, he says, who led you to Christ, I want you to know how much, even though, he says, I want you to know how much I love you, even though you're 
uh, comparing one another with one another, and you're taking sides, and you're dividing the church, and you're critical and unkind and immoral. He says, I want you to know how much I love you. I was the one. Church was full of first-generational Christians. I was the one who led you to Christ. Beloved children, aren't you glad that God doesn't throw you out when you sin? You have ten, even though you may have in time 10,000 instructors, yet have you not many fathers? There's something special about being a dad. Garrett sent me a picture of him holding little Asa Paul this morning. Kind of interrupted my studies a little bit. And in the hospital, since he's a doctor, he had, he had to wear a mask. But I could tell he was smiling behind that. Every father knows of the joy of holding for the first time. He says to the Corinthians, you folks have made me righteously indignant with your attitude, but I want you to know something, you're still my children. I love you in the faith. Though you are divisive and proud, possessive, childish, disobedient, and moral, yet I love you. I've begotten you through the gospel. And so I beg you, verse 16, be ye followers of me. No man, this is a little quote up here, I ever met was as my father's equal, and I've never loved a man as much. It's true, there's a special relationship, I think, between a father and his children, a mother and her children. Be ye followers of me. And either this is a very proud statement for someone to make in leadership, or it is a statement where he's saying, I want you, after all I've said in chapter 4, after the scars that you see on my body and the humility of mind with which I ministered to you in Corinth and entered into you, and with the trust that I shared with you, that it wasn't about me, my flashy style of preaching. It wasn't even about my PowerPoints. It was about simply the gospel landing on your hearts, and by faith, God did a work in you, and you came to faith because of my faithfulness with the truth. You're my children in the faith, so to speak. I want you to know, if you, if you just... Are you listening, parents? If you'll just do what I do, you'll be okay. My premarital counseling with a couple that we married yesterday in the rain, Lane and Tiffany, was pretty easy. I just said to both of them, because I knew a little bit about their parents, I said, you know what, we could shorten this premarital counseling with this. Just be like your parents. You'll be okay. And that's the goal of parenting. To say, do as I say, but not as I do. No. Just follow me, son. See those footprints in the sand? Just follow me, and you'll be okay. If we are to really enjoy going forward, for certainly Paul would often Defer and say, follow Christ, but I'm following Christ, so it's okay in a physical sense to do what I've been doing. 
and uh, follow the footsteps that I have left. For this cause, he says, I'm sending you, uh, verse 17, Timothy, who is my son. He's going to be the person that reflects my own heart to you. You're going off the rails a little bit, so I'm going to send a pastor, a teacher, who will reflect my own heart to you. No man has the mind like I do, like Timothy. He will care for your estate. Verse 18, you're puffed up as though I'm not coming, but I'm sending a proxy. I'm sending uh, my son in the faith. And I will come to you shortly, and I will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power, the action. So be careful. I will be. uh, Dad's coming back. (laughs) He's using this paternal tone. For the kingdom of God is not in words, but in power. So please, he says, don't make me come back with a rod of correction rather in the spirit of meekness. Be followers of me. Let's pray together. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Pastor Lauren Regeer at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.